Wouldn't life be simpler if we had a training manual? You know, like one of those ones that come from Ikea? <laughs> you know, it's just pictures, right? Simple. Wrong. I know firsthand uh, from Ikea, my wife at the time, who was a very perfectionist girlfriend, wanted and had to have this entertainment center from Ikea. So we drove down to Portland, we got it on cheap because no tax in Oregon, and we brought it back to our house, and what should have taken me six hours to put this stupid entertainment center together <laughs> probably took me about all week. And uh, it's a good thing that she married me anyways. <laughs> but <clears throat> that entertainment center was just the source of just a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration. But you see, nothing causes me more anxiety than when uh, God is calling me to make a life change. It really stops and it makes me realize, like, hey, you know, there is no manual for life. There is no manual for following God. And so it causes me anxiety because I'm constantly asking the question, is this the right thing? Is this what God wants me to do? I'm having to step out in faith, and I'm having to uh, see what God has for me. One particular example is when we found out that we, my wife was pregnant with our son Tobias. At the time, I was in school, and I was uh, barely working part-time, and I was a full-time student. And so I'm trying to support my family, trying to be a good student, trying to uh, do everything I can to make life happen. And my wife gets pregnant. And so, not going to lie, I was anxious. I was stressed about the future. I was asking questions of, am I going to be a good dad? Am I going to be able to take care of my family? And you see, the thing is, is that God put us in that situation, and it was something that we were expecting for, but it still caused me a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, I know some of you have similar stories where God has been calling you to take a step of faith, and there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. Is this what God is going to be having for me? We ask questions like, what is the school that God wants me to go to? What is the job that I should be working at? And will I be able to have a house? Will I be able to support myself? And so we are constantly asking these questions of how are we going to figure life out on our own? Part of it is we realize that God is calling us there, but Part of it is, is we're just kind of fearful of the unknown, fearful that God is going to abandon us and we're left to, uh, <clears throat> left to figure out how life is going to work. You see, it's in all areas of our lives that God is calling us to trust him. Ultimately, we trust God for his provision and for his sovereign reign in our lives. The sovereign, sovereign control allows us to hold on to his promises as Pastor Kevin explained last week uh, of God's sovereignty. He said, if God alone is God and all he does is good, his control should comfort us. And so, similarly, we see that, that throughout the book of Esther, Esther is grappling and wrestling with this idea of God's sovereignty. How is God in control, yet her people are facing imminent destruction? And so, 
what we see throughout the book of Esther is that God is orchestrating all details for himself. He is working all details for his goodness, for his, for his glory. We need to recognize that God placed Esther as an agent to save her people from total annihilation. You see, both Esther and the entire Bible teach us something, two very important things about God's character. Again, as Pastor Kevin explained, we have human responsibility and we have God's sovereignty. They are like two pedals in a bike that they are working together. They are interconnected. They are separate while they are one. What we need to recognize with this is that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not working in opposition with each other, but they are working in tandem together. They are close friends and not enemies. But uh, one thing we do also need to see is that God can accomplish his purpose without us. He is sovereign enough and he's in control enough to complete his purpose without us. But through it all, that God is inviting us to trust him. And as we trust him, we share in his glory. We share in his ability to redeem people. We share in, in that redemption story, just like what we see in the book of Esther. And so today, uh, we're going to still be in Esther 8. Uh, we, our sermon series has been working through the book of Esther, and we've been seeing how God orchestrates all things according to his promise, all things according to his glory. And so as we come to chapter 8, this is the chapter that everything in the book has been pointing to, everything that God has been, point, has been working out for his good is, is happening in Esther 8. We see that he began the ball rolling in Esther 6. So Esther 6, Esther 7, God is, is orchestrating and he's, putting, he's put Esther, he's put Mordecai in their positions of power and he's executed Haman for his treachery. But now here in Esther 8, everything is coming together. Everything is coming together to, to highlight God's glory. And it's important to see that God has not only grown Esther and Mordecai in their faith, but that he has placed them in this position of authority for his purpose. So after Haman's execution in chapter 7 is where we pick up in, in verse 1. And it says, On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, What's happening in these two verses is that God is giving Mordecai uh, this estate, Haman's estate. So we need to see that, that Haman is incredibly wealthy. We don't necessarily see that from the, from the text, but we, we see that, that Haman has, uh, he's almost like Bill Gates kind of, kind of wealthy. He's got multiple multi-million dollar homes. He's got the nicest Ferraris, nicest Bentleys, and he's amassed all of this wealth, and he has probably one of the best properties overlooking the entire city of Susa. He's a wealthy man, and we've seen throughout Esther that he's acquired this wealth through ill-gotten means. He's, he's lied, he's manipulated, he's greedy, he's, he's work, got all of this wealth for himself, and now in God's sovereignty, God is removed that from Haman, and he's given that to Mordecai. And so uh, what's happening here is that nothing in this story is happening apart from God's 
working. God is intimately involved in all of these details. Mordecai has received this wealth, not because Mordecai is a smart guy, but because God is blessing him. God is taking care of his children. Throughout this entire story, Mordecai and Esther have moved from being uh, hiding, they've, they've, they've hidden who they are in their faith, and now they are bold about who they are. They are identifying with God's people, and God is, is blessing them for that. God is taking care of them. God is taking care of his children. You see, all of this wealth that Mordecai had, it's not from Xerxes, it's, it's from God. This position of authority that moving from a nobody to the prime minister of the greatest nation in the world at this point, it's not because Mordecai went to school for this, it's because God is taking care of Mordecai. So all of the things that we see that Mordecai is given is a direct result of God giving that to him. And so God, as we see, God takes care of his children. God uh, loves his children. And so God is, is working all things for his good and for our glory. But this doesn't mean that God promises to, take, to make all of us rich. This doesn't mean that God is going to put us all in positions of status and authority. In fact, uh, Scripture promises quite the contrary most of the time. Scripture promises that we are going to face hardship. We are going to face trials. We are going to face affliction. But what God does promise is that regardless of what's happening, he's in control of all things and that he is working in our lives. So there's two great promises that, that have encouraged me throughout all Scripture. And the first one is that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then the second is that he's working all things out for our good and for his glory. See, God has made abundant promises of who he is throughout all Scripture. Promises that we can go back and we can say, yeah, you know, God is good. Uh, God says, taste and see that I am good. Uh, God is making all of these promises throughout Scripture because he wants us to trust us. He wants us to know that he is in control of all things and there's nothing that surprises him. And so he is, uh, we can find rest and comfort knowing that God is sovereign. See, even if you're not a child of God here this morning, you can still recognize that God is working in your life. Just look at the fact that you're here this morning. God has brought you to, uh, to church against all of these odds. And you can even look back and see all of these coincidences that have been happening in your life that God has been orchestrating, that God has been working out, that God is, is intimately involved in your life. See, it's understanding that God is sovereign and it radically changes everything about how we perceive this world. It means resting in who God is and, and who he created us to be. It means that we are living differently than the Hamans and the Xerxes of the world. It means that we are living out our faith regardless of what's happening. You see, the way that Esther boldly lived out her faith is most clear in verse 5. And so what we see in verse 5 is uh, she's pleading before the king. She is urging the king to reverse his edict. And so... Uh, it says here, she says, and she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eye, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. So she's coming before the king. Even though Haman is dead, the threat 
of Haman's law is still in full effect. She recognizes this, and so God has placed her in, uh, in the king's world for just this purpose. She recognizes that, that destruction is still pending for her, for her people. And so we see that she is interceding before her pe- for her people before the king. She's pleading. She's requesting them. And Esther's could have been very quiet about the unjust law, but she decided to speak up for the injustice of her people. But what we see is that she pleads for, her, for the salvation of her people because she can't bear them to see them destroyed or harmed. Look at, at what happens in verse 6. And so Esther is, is pleading, and she says, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Do you see how Esther is pleading and interceding before King Xerxes? She's uh, coming before this unjust king, and she is, she, she's, she's pleading for him. Uh, not for him, but for her people. She's pleading for the security of others. She's putting her own welfare over the, the welfare of others. She's so concerned for, that, for, the, for them to be saved that she is coming before King Xerxes. And so the way that she petitioned Xerxes is exactly the same way that we are to plead before the sovereign king. It's the same way that we pray before our God, our Heavenly Father. And so she demonstrates two fundamental ways in which we are to approach prayer. And the first is that we just pray more frequently. Let me just be the first to say that God is far better than Xerxes. God is more just than Xerxes. God is more sovereign than Xerxes. Xerxes was here but for a moment, but God is eternal. God is, is long-lasting. And so not only is God a sovereign king, but God is our heavenly father. We pray more frequently because of the fact that God is in control of all things. We invite him into what's happening in our life, the confusion that we have. We invite him to, to speak into it because he's the God of all things. And so it looks like this. It looks like we, we start our mornings off by inviting the Lord into, uh, into our situations where we know if we're going to have a busy day, we start our morning praying that the Lord would give us wisdom. Pray that the Lord would, would open our eyes on, on how to navigate our meetings, navigate our days. Uh, pray that we would be intentional with our time throughout the day. It also means that we bring our failing relationships before the sovereign king. It means that we pray over our broken relationships. It means that we pray over our work experiences. It means that we pray over our, our, our hurting health. It means we even pray over our city because God is in control and sovereign over all things. But ultimately, we invite God in because he tells us to approach his throne with confidence. In Hebrews 4.16, it says this, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time and need. See, God himself promises to answer our prayer, especially in time of need. We need wisdom, God gives us wisdom. It's abundantly clear throughout all Scripture. Pray, and the Lord will give you wisdom. If anyone is lacking wisdom, he will give it to you. You see, if we have any physical need, the Lord 
provides that. If we need encouragement, God provides encouragement because he's the God of encouragement. And you see, he does this because God loves us, because God is involved in our lives and God wants to see us grow. God wants to see us flourish. And so God's sovereignty should give us comfort to pray more. But not only that, but we should be praying for the people who don't know God. And we should be praying that God, that they come to know God and love him. So we pray for the salvation of others. And this is what Esther did for her people with the, or facing impending destruction. It's also what the Apostle Paul does in Romans 9 uh, when he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But did you catch that? Not only does Paul have a burden for the people who don't know Jesus, but he would rather give up his own salvation if it means that other people come to know Christ. Man, that's the same heart of Jesus, or the same heart of Esther here in, in, in Esther 8. She's willing to give up her own safety if it means that her people are safe. And uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing. And, and so how many of us would put, us, put ourselves in the same situation? How many of us would be willing to say, I would give up my own security in heaven if it means my my sister comes to faith, if it means that my mom comes to faith. I'm willing to give up my own security if it means that everyone else can come to know Christ. That is a hard thing to swallow. And so uh, Christian theologian Warren Wearsby says this. He says, One concerned person devoted to prayer can make a great difference in this world. For prayer is the key that releases the power of God. You see, I'm not entirely sure how this works. All of Scripture tells us that this is a profound mystery, but that we do know that God delights in making himself known when his people pray to him. And so uh, God demonstrates his sovereignty in, in, in answering these prayers for us. And I guarantee you, if you start praying for, uh, for someone to come to know Christ, or you start praying that you can interact with someone to come to know, or just even to have a conversation on a friendship and, and how can I share the gospel with them, God is going to bring someone along your path, and he is going to allow you to have that friendship with that person. I guarantee you. And so we need to be praying more as, um, as, as the people of God. But even just with Esther's intercession for the Jews, uh, specifically in revoking Haman's evil law, we're not sure how Xerxes is going to respond. He could ignore Esther. He is 100% in his right as this unjust king to ignore what her pleas. He can just have a, 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 a blind eyes and, and deaf ears and just ignore what she's saying. He could banish Queen Esther like he did with Queen Vashti in chapter 1. He's well within that right. We know that he is a, an unjust and foolish king. 
But there are thousands of different ways that, that uh, Xerxes could have responded, but the only way that responded was because of God's working in the whole situation. Look at Xerxes' response in verse 8. And so Xerxes is essentially uh, listening to Esther. And so while we see that Haman's law is irrevocable, can't be taken off the books, God is orchestrating for a new law through Mordecai. You see, this new law is so important to get out into the world that Mordecai summons the top officials. He summons the, 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 the top scribes, the best scribes to come and, and to transcribe this new law to get it out into, into everyone's language. You see, like the first law, no expense is paid in getting it out into the kingdom. It's, it's a cost a pretty penny to send people out to the entire world from India to Ethiopia. It's, it's, an, it's an expense. And it's so urgent that the king himself is saying, get this message out. And this is what Mordecai's new law is in verse 11. He says, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. And so, essentially, Xerxes is permitting the Jews to defend themselves from enemies. Mordecai is not out for blood. Mordecai is not out to create this, this crazy law, but he is, wants his people safe. He wants his people safe from harm. So he copies the language from, from Haman's original decree, and that permitted the killing of everyone. And it seems a little bit brutal, but really the Jews only have the right to defend themselves on the day of destruction. The nothing else. They are simply defending themselves. But there are some differences in this, in this law. You see, this law is giving specific rights to the Jews. They are allowed to gather. They are allowed to defend themselves. But there's also some slight differences. See, the old law carried death, and this new law brings life. Mordecai isn't, in fact, uh, nullifying the, the law of Haman. It raises an even greater question for us. If a group of pagan scribes without Twitter without Facebook, without email, without cell phones, if they could take up Mordecai's decree to an entire empire, how much more should we Christians be able to take the message of the gospel to a lost world? You see, some of you may say that, well, you know, I interact with Christians, I live with Christians, I, everyone I know is a Christian. The reality is, is we are living in a world that is post-Christian, a culture that people don't know God. Just even a few months ago, my wife and I had our son in basketball, and we met a couple with similar age, uh, two kids, similar age kids, similar life experiences. And here's the thing that we realized after we started talking with them. They have no idea who Christ is. They have no idea who God is. They have no idea what Christianity is. Like, no categories. And so we are living in a world of people who don't know Jesus. And we have the message that 
brings life to all people. We have one mission in this world, and that is to reach the entire world with the only message that truly matters, the message of Jesus Christ. It requires us to boldly live out the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like, we not only are we commanded, go, preach the gospel, and we are commanded to make disciples of all nations, but you see that promise that God gives us at the end? Behold, I am with you always. Again, like, we are responsible to preach the gospel, but God is with us. God is, is still with us. And it means taking the gospel to a world means that we are sharing the gospel with our friends, sharing the gospel with our coworkers, sharing the gospel with our family members. We are responsible to boldly preach Christ everywhere we go. But it also results in us resting in the fact that it is God who saves. It is God who redeems. It is God who does all of these things, and it's because of God that we can be bold and we can obey. But you see, the story's not over yet. Last time the king wrote a law in Esther 3, the city erupted into chaos. It erupted into confusion. People don't know what to make of it. And so we're almost left wondering what's going to happen this time. But notice what happens in, in verse 15. And it says, The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews had light and gladness with joy and honor. That's a very different reaction. It's not exactly what we would be expecting. Like, how can this law get out and cause so much joy? But you see, we have to dig a little bit deeper from Esther 3 to Esther 8 the total amount of time that has elapsed is roughly three months. Three months, that's it. Haman wrote the law. It's been in effect for three months. Nine months, the Jews have been looking at the calendar, looking and expecting their, their destruction. So for three months, they are full of gloom and doom. It's not a city you really wanted to be in. Everyone is just pessimistic. But in this Verse, we see that they've moved from gloom and doom to gladness and dancing. The author tells us seven different ways that the Jews were full of joy and happiness. And they are just exploding in just two small verses. They are exploding with, with joy. So the city is erupting with this massive celebration. You see, this new edict has brought hope and, and life to the people who, who believe it. Again, three months. Can you just imagine, like, three months you are looking at this calendar date and you're saying to yourself, this is the day I'm going to die. This is the day that I am going to stop existing as a person. It's, it's not going to produce great joy in you. But, so, the reason for celebration here is because they recognize that God has orchestrated a reversal of events. They recognize that God is is saving them. Yes, Mordecai is the agent who wrote the law, but they don't see all of the behind things. All they see is Haman wrote this law, and now Mordecai is writing a law that reverses it. That's all they see. 
And so they are celebrating the fact that God is saving them. There's so much emotion surging through the people that they take the streets to the biggest party that I think Susa has ever seen. It's like you have Christmas and Thanksgiving and Fourth of July and New Year's and Easter and all of these holidays that we celebrate, and you just roll them all into one, maybe even throw in the Super Bowl party too. But it's so exciting. People are dancing. People are rejoicing at the salvation that the Lord has brought them. You see, what made this decree different wasn't necessarily the words used, because Haman kind of copied the same words. But what makes this decree different is that the Jews received the message with hope, and they believed that God will save them from their destruction. And so the Jews are celebrating God's providence in their lives. I understand life can be incredibly difficult at times. I understand that what we experience in this world is, seems so unbearable. The reality is, is that what we experience is for such a short amount of time. The, the difficulties we, we face, while yes, there's certainly things that linger for the rest of our lives, the difficulties we face, the things that we don't know how we're going to even manage, last for sh such a short time. And so what God is constantly doing is God is calling us to trust him in those moments. And so uh, <clears throat> God is calling us to trust him, and he is telling us that we can find comfort in his promises. We can rest in who he is because he is sovereign over all things. And it's when we can trust and we can rest in God and his working that we can actually have a different perspective on how we view our circumstances now. But you see, when the story started, the Jews kept a low profile. And Esther, too, Esther was hiding her identity. The Jews are, are hiding who they are. But now in, in Esther 8, they are declaring God's salvation. They are identifying with, with each other. And it's because that they are boldly identifying as God's people that the people around them are converting to fear God and the Jews. Just, uh, just look at that. Um, so... And, and so we see in verse 17, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So the Jews are declaring God's sovereignty. They're declaring God's salvation. And people are literally coming to faith because of this. That is, that's, that's bold. That's, that's crazy. And so this fear, this isn't, this isn't a kind of a fear that produces trembling. This doesn't mean that they are locking their doors and they are afraid that the Jews are going to come and kill them. We know that the Jews have a specific day where they can defend themselves. And so they are, are just boldly declaring what God has done in their salvation and the people are converted to have an awe and a wonder in what God is doing. They are what is later called as, uh, as God-fearers. But how much greater is it for us who have tasted and um, seen God's grace evident in our lives through the cross of Christ?
You see, the God's sovereignty is made most clear on the cross. The Jews experienced a physical salvation, whereas we experience a physical and spiritual salvation. We are saved from our sins. We are saved from, from, from hell, from, from all of these things that are happening, but Christ came specifically for our salvation. You see, we can't fully understand God's sovereignty apart from Christ. The salvation causes us to rejoice, to declare what God has done in our life, and it's through Christ that we can boldly live out our faith because we can truly see how God is working and moving in our world. It's through Christ that we realize that if God is for us, there's nothing that, is, that can be against us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of, 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 love of God. Esther's story not only teaches us about God's sovereignty, it teaches us how our response should be. You see, we are to live boldly in light of God's sovereignty. Recognizing that God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. Recognizing that God desires for you to pray bold prayers. Recognizing that God is calling you to live boldly in reaching people for the gospel. And it also means just boldly living out your faith in the day-to-day, boldly declaring what God has done and telling people. We cannot underestimate the power that God has given us through our, through our testimony. But it's because of God's sovereignty that we can live boldly, that we can live without fear, that we can live without anxiety and worry. You see, God has given us the story of Esther to encourage us and to trust him, and to take a step of faith for him. Because God's encouraging every single person here this morning to take a step of faith. God desires a relationship with you, a relationship built on trust. It's because of this relationship that we are free to take risks for his kingdom. We are free to live out our faith And we are free to rest in the fact that God is with us. Believing that God is for us. There's nothing on this earth that can separate us from the love of God. And the understanding that God's providence allows us to take bold steps of faith for Him. You see, that same week that my wife and I found out that that she was pregnant with Tobias... I'm stressed and I'm worried and I'm concerned about how am I going to how am I going to provide for my family God in his love and his providence had two anonymous donations come in and and paid for my entire semester of school Um, and it was one of those things that God was reassuring me that I have you you're not alone. I am working alongside you. To this day, I don't know who those people are. But what I do know, that regardless of what's happening, that God is with you. God's providence is going to look differently for all of us. But God is still working and God is still moving you to to trust him and to take 
bold steps of faith for him. For some of you, the boldest step of faith that you can make this morning is your first step in faith. And that is to place your hope and your trust in, in the person of Christ. It's the boldest step because you don't know Christ. You don't know how God has been moving and acting in your life. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to, to find Pastor Kevin or myself in the lobby afterwards. We'd love to help you navigate what that looks like. But this is the best decision of your life because of the fact that it's a matter of life and death. And God wants to have a relationship with you. So please, take that step of faith this morning. For some of you, that bold step of faith is, is you know that the Lord wants you to share your faith more. You know that the Lord wants you to uh, share what God has been doing in your life more. As conversations come up and people ask you, why, I, how are you not stressed under this massive amount of, of life that's happening? And you can attribute that and you can say, because God has been working in my heart and my life and it's because of him that I am like this. Just having that, being bold to, sh to share what God is doing. Be bold to share your faith with others. And honestly, you're going to be surprised where the conversation's going to go. I recognize that for some of you, life is challenging. Life doesn't make sense right now. Everything is falling apart. Everything is uh, coming out of the seams. And so maybe your bold step of faith this morning is to just trust. Scripture tells us that, that uh, God commands us actually just to, to be still and know that he is God. Sometimes for you, it, it, it may seem very simple, it may seem uh, too easy to just trust trust in what God is doing but he's for you and, uh, God fights for you God is for you, God is with you and so some of us it just means stopping and just trusting in God trusting in his character and great resources are the book of Psalms people going through life, people trying to make sense of life and all throughout, you are seeing who God is. Maybe for some of you, your bold step of faith is to destroy sin in your life. You know what God has been calling you to give up, what God has been calling you to, to destroy. And there's fear. There's trepidation in, in giving that up. But see, again, God promises us that if we repent, and we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So trust Christ as you are giving up that sin. Or perhaps God is calling you to take a step of faith in your workplace. Be bold in your faith with your coworkers. Be praying for your coworkers. Or maybe the Lord is calling you then to move on to another to another job, to another career. Know that regardless of what step of faith you take, that God is with you. God is not leaving you to figure things out on your own. So whatever the step 
that God is calling you to take right now. It's important for you. And God is gently telling you to trust him through it. I don't believe that our life would be different. It's not going to make things easier. But I do believe that trusting Christ will change the way we see our circumstances. And our lives will be changed radically, especially in life. boldly unlock of God's sovereignty.